each one hour reduction in self-reported sleep duration below seven hours per night is associated with a 6% increase in risk of dying from any cause. It's really important to give yourself enough time in bed, of course, and this is what I would focus on because you can't control how long you sleep for, but you can give yourself a sleep opportunity. Welcome to the Metagenics Clinical Podcast, where natural healthcare practitioners can hear innovative, cutting-edge information from leading experts from around the world. Welcome to Metagenics Clinical Podcast. I'm Nathan Rose, and with me today is Greg Potter from the UK. Welcome, Greg. Hi, Nathan. Good to be here. Thanks for joining us. I think um, maybe just to give a bit of context, it's about 6.10 over in Brisbane. It's the height of summer, and you're in England, and we're talking about circadian rhythms today. So tell me, where are you? What's the time, and what's the temperature over there? I am in central London. The time is 12 minutes past eight in the morning. Temperature is probably 10 degrees C. It's really freaky February so far. The last three days, it's been about 18 degrees C. Really? Wow. I know. know, Unheard of. (laughs) I've got friends who have been putting sun cream on in February, which is often the coldest month of the year over here. Wow. Right now, it's great, but I'm not sure how the summer will be. It might be an absolute scorcher. Maybe by your standards, <laughs> but possibly not ours. But anyway, we could talk about the weather. But I want to just sort of discuss how well, it's taken a few attempts to connect because we're trying to get our timing right. We're here to say mm. about our circadian rhythm. Now, you've just completed your PhD in looking at circadian biology. So perhaps just give us a bit of a background of your research and where you're at now. Yeah, so my background is actually in exercise science. I did my undergraduate master's in those and then. Towards the end of that time, I just realized that I wanted to help people primarily through lifestyle. And I didn't know nearly as much about sleep and circadian rhythms as I did about exercise and diet. And so I wanted to add that string to my bow. So this opportunity came up at the University of Leeds in the north of England. And I finished halfway through 2018. And my PhD was broadly about sleep, diet, and metabolic health. So it had a few different components to it. One was validation of the dietary recall method. One was a cross-sectional study looking at associations between sleep duration and cardiometabolic health in UK adults. Did some work looking at melatonin and its possible utility as a prophylactic agent against the development of type 2 diabetes. And then I did a couple of other bits and pieces on the side, some related to meal timing relative to sleep-wake cycles and whether that associates with health outcomes. Fascinating. We're going to dive into all those. All right. Um, so let's start off about circadian biology. What is circadian rhythm or circadian biology? So a circadian rhythm is just a repeatable, predictable, roughly 24-hour change in a biological output, which is driven by an internal timing system. And these evolved in response to predictable environmental cycles. So each day we have 24 hour changes in the light dark cycle, for example, temperature and food availability too, all as a result of the rotation of the planet about its axis. The issue is that these rhythms, when left to their own devices, aren't precisely 24 hours. So what that means is that they need to be reset to 24 hours each day. And if we can understand the most important cues to that resetting process, then we can better align our circadian rhythms with the 24-hour day. And it's thought that that probably has important health consequences. Interesting. All right. So now there's a couple of clocks in in the body, uh, the central clock and essentially the rest of which we'll call the the peripheral clocks. Uh, Describe the, the central clock to us and what, in a sense, synchronizes that. Yeah, so the central clock is a structure named the suprachiasmatic nucleus or suprachiasmatic nuclei because actually it's paired to two structures and it sits in the front of the hypothalamus in the brain. And the most important cue in resetting this clock is the light-dark cycle. So we have specialized cells in our eyes, which are named intrinsically photosensitive retinal ganglion cells. And these contain a photopigment named melanopsin. And this absorbs blue light, and then in response to this, signals that information about blue light back through the optic nerves 
to the master clock, which sits above where the optic nerves cross, and it samples information about light exposure to basically keep track of our light exposure history over time. This then relays a signal back to the pineal gland, and that synthesizes melatonin during darkness. So melatonin in this way acts as an internal signal of the nighttime. So when melatonin is high, it's the biological nighttime. And then this circulates throughout our bodies to tell cells <coughs> elsewhere in our bodies that it's the biological nighttime. Because of course, not every cell in our bodies is directly exposed to the light-dark cycle. So we need internal time givers as well. And melatonin is not the only one. There are some others. So cortisol, for example, is one of them. There are also changes in body temperature each day, which are probably important to resetting those peripheral clocks that you mentioned. And then there are also signals that are, re that are relayed via the nervous system too. Interesting. So with the melatonin, uh, as you mentioned before, our circadian rhythm is roughly over 24 hours, but it's not precise. Do we need that... Um, that light dark cycle to try and anchor us back to being in sync with our environment? We do. We need it to anchor the master clock specifically. So if you take people and you have them go down into a cave, for example, for a period of several days where they have no idea what time it is outside and they're not really exposed to changes in light and dark, changes in temperature, changes in food availability, then what you find is that on average, somebody's internal clock is about 24 hours and 15 minutes. So what that means is that over time, the person's clock would gradually become more and more misaligned with the 24-hour light-dark cycle outside. And if you change the timing of food availability, then you can change the timing of these peripheral clocks, which you mentioned, which are basically all of those clocks that sit outside of the master clock in the brain. But you don't seem to be able to shift the timing of the master clock a great deal. And there's been work published in recent years showing that. So there was some research by scientists at the University of Surrey two years ago and basically took people through two conditions in which they shifted meal timing by five hours. So in both conditions, oh, yeah. the participants had three meals each day. And in one condition, they then shifted at each of those meals five hours later. And what they found is that that altered the timing of some of the peripheral clocks and also the blood glucose rhythm which suggests that those clocks that are involved in regulation of that rhythm also shifted. But the timing of the melatonin rhythm, which is a proxy of the timing of the master clock, didn't shift at all. So okay. fundamentally, the light-dark cycle is the most important cue in anchoring our rhythms each day. And then diet timing also seems to be important for peripheral clocks specifically. Sure. And I've heard you discuss a little bit about melatonin. It's probably somewhat stereotyped as this sedative sleeping agent but mm. it seems to be far more diverse than that and probably not a sedative in itself yeah so it of course depends on the species that you're looking at because actually if you look at nocturnal animals for example then their melatonin levels are highest during darkness too which is their daytime yeah so it's better to think of it as an internal signal of darkness for that reason i think but in humans What's interesting is that if you look, for example, at people who have undergone pinealectomy, where their pineal gland is removed, then they scarcely have any circulating melatonin. They probably have a tiny bit because melatonin is not only synthesized in the pineal gland, but they barely have any. However, their sleep seems to be relatively normal. So I think the best way to think about physiological levels of melatonin is that they gate the timing of the sleep-wake cycle. So it's as if they get all of the other structures that are involved in the generation of sleep in line for the sleep race. Then they pull the trigger, melatonin pulls the trigger, but it doesn't really participate in the race of sleep itself. This said, if you take exogenous melatonin, so let's say you supplement with one milligram of melatonin or five milligrams of melatonin, or even a lower dose such as 300 micrograms, then the concentrations of melatonin in your blood will be dramatically higher than they would be physiologically. And at those very high levels, melatonin definitely does have some somnogenic or sleep-promoting oh. effects. But there's that discordance between physiological levels of melatonin and pharmacological levels, I think. So melatonin, I would say that it, it is a weak sleep promoter. It definitely has effects 
So it interacts with orexin, for example, and dopamine in the brain. It also seems to facilitate heat loss. So if you take melatonin, then it causes peripheral vasodilation. And then when you lose heat, the temperature of your brain tends to drop. And that's important to entering deeper stages of sleep. But I think that in general, it's much better thought of as a marker of the biological nighttime. And what we're now seeing is that rather than just being involved in sleep-wake regulation, melatonin has numerous other roles too. So possibly it's important to immune regulation, for example. It's probably also important to metabolic regulation too. So for example, melatonin seems to inhibit glucose-stimulated insulin secretion by the pancreas. And the reason for this is plausibly to prevent our blood sugar levels from dropping too low during the biological nighttime. The implication is that if you consume lots of carbohydrate-rich foods, for example, during the biological nighttime, then your body won't be able to dispose of those as effectively at that time. Interesting. We'll touch upon um, timing of food shortly. I just want to uh, explore some of the sleep science you've looked at. Now, first of all, let's have the the broad uh, look at... I suppose the, the ultimate uh, disruption in circadian rhythm comes from shift work. What has mm. epidemiological data shown about shift workers? So I suppose it's probably important to preempt this by saying that shift work's a complex exposure scenario. It's not True. just about circadian misalignment. So shift workers, for example, are more likely to drive, to drive when they're tired. They're more likely to undergo psychosocial stress as a result of trying to maintain relationships with people who are working daytime shifts as opposed to nighttime shifts but many people of course work shifts it's probably about 15 to 20 percent of people in countries such as australia and the us and england and shift work night shift work specifically has been associated with all sorts of adverse health consequences so for example if you look at all of the studies that have been done looking at people who do night shift work and then they track their health outcomes over time, then what you find is that it's associated with increased risk of diabetes, increased risk of weight gain, coronary heart disease, stroke, possibly some cancers too. So that cross-sectional evidence suggests that this type of exposure situation is problematic. And then to actually try to understand the mechanisms, of course, people have tried to Mm. experimentally disrupt people's body clocks and then look at the health outcomes that result from that type of disruption. And what are those experiments found? They found rapid changes in a variety of outcomes, both metabolic health and cognitive performance. Much of this work has been done by a guy at Harvard named Frank Shear, and he published a paper 10 years ago, which basically showed that within three days or so many of the participants who were previously healthy temporarily became pre-diabetic and there are different ways of studying this so for example you could take people and then the first night you could completely invert the light dark cycle so they're now active and eating during the biological nighttime immediately but what frank shear typically does is uses a type of experimental protocol named forced desynchrony and what this basically entails is enforcing a light dark cycle that our bodies can't entrain to so because our body's clocks are about 24 hours if the light dark cycle is about 24 hours plus or minus a couple of hours perhaps then we can normally resynchronize with that new light dark cycle but if for example all of a sudden you're imposing a 28 hour light dark cycle then our clocks run free and over time, you can then understand the relative importance of the timing of behavior and the timing of the biological clock on outcomes such as blood glucose regulation and so on. And that work has shown all of these negative consequences that happen very quickly, various others too, such as an increase in inflammation, disruption to the endocrine system, which is very widespread, disruption to gene expression as well. And then when people have brought people in for what a frankly, quite brutal experiments in which this type of paradigm is enforced over a longer period of time, sometimes combined with sleep loss. Over time, it seems to lead to organ dysfunction. So for example, initially you might see an increase in insulin production in order to try and better regulate blood sugar 
during this time of reduced insulin sensitivity. But then over time, you might actually see a reduction in insulin secretion by the pancreatic beta cells, probably because those cells are starting to fail. So this is starting to give us some strong evidence that circadian disruption per se is a direct cause of some of these health outcomes which have been associated with night shift work. Well, fascinating and a little bit alarming. Um, now, you mentioned to say 20% or so of the population might work shift, but there's a lot of people who probably have a, a less than ideal, you know, uh, dark and light cycle. And mm. this uh, moves into chronotypes. Can you explain chronotypes and, and what sort of that entails? Yeah, so in principle, the, probably the best definition of chronotype is differences between people in the phenotypic expression of behaviors that are regulated by the circadian system. So for example, you might look at the timing of the sleep-wake cycle. And what's important to know is that when you're discussing chronotype, you're talking about where you sit on a population distribution relative to others. And we know that various factors do influence the timing of somebody's biology. So for example, if you look at very young people, they wake up early, they go to bed early, then the time of the body clock delays during adolescence and people are typically at their latest at the end of adolescence. So actually some people have proposed that you can use chronotype as a marker of the end of adolescence. And then after that point, people start becoming earlier again. And by reaching an advanced age, people are often even earlier than they were in their childhood. And there's also a small difference between the sexes such that mm. on average, women of a given age tend to be a little bit earlier than men of a given age. And the reason for this is probably just that men or boys have a longer period of maturation. Nice. So they keep, they keep delaying for a little bit longer. So women, for example, or, or young women, are probably at the latest at about 19, 19 and a half years old, whereas men might be at their latest at about 21 or so. And then by the time of the menopause, that difference is largely nullified. Okay. But what, what you see, especially in the modern environment where we don't have such strong time cues, so it's not like we're out living on the savannah and we're spending lots of time in daylight each day. Instead, we're inside 88% of our lives on average. <laughs> what you see is that the differences between people become exaggerated because we don't have these strong time cues that are anchoring us to that nat natural light dark cycle. And because of that, the chronotype tends to disperse and the distribution becomes wider. And this can cause various issues. And some of them, of course, related to sleep loss because on average, our body's clocks are longer than 24 hours. If you're under these weak time cues, then for many people, their sleep-wake cycle starts shifting later. But if those people then have to wake up for work in the morning at a set time, then they'll use alarm clocks, they'll restrict their sleep, and then they suffer all of the attendant consequences of that sleep loss. So they, they experience sleep restriction, as you call it? Yeah, much of the time. And is there much data on increased risk of chronic disease with those with shortened sleep or those who possess or I suppose uh, live a, a uh, owl chronotype lifestyle? Yeah, I think you probably need to make the distinction between an owl lifestyle and sleep loss because of course it is possible to be an owl and get complete sleep. Yeah. Yes. It's just, it's just that much of the time that's not the case. So I, I suppose that I would probably deal with those two questions separately. I don't know which one you want me to speak about first, whether it's night owls or the effects of sleep loss per se. All right, let's start with the night owls versus the larks. Okay, so night owls have been shown to have a greater risk of various diseases. And if you look, for example, at all-cause mortality, then there was work published last year by Kristen Knudsen, and she looked at this huge database that we have over here in the UK called the Biobank. There are more than 500,000 people in it, I think, now. And in her study, I think she looked at more than 400,000 adults. But anyway, she found that 
being a definite evening type. And this is using quite a rudimentary questionnaire that's basically asking people, are you definitely a night person? Are you definitely a morning person? Are you a bit of a morning person? Are you a bit of a night person? Anyway, people who are definitely evening people were at greater risk of psychological disorders, diabetes, neurological disorders, GI disorders, respiratory disorders. And wow. overall, there was, a, there was a very small increase in risk of all-cause mortality in the night owls compared to the morning larks. But that's, that's just one study. And of course, this, mm. this is cross-sectional data. Something that people have become interested in, in recent years also, which is a related construct to something called social jet lag, which I'm sure you're familiar with. But in principle, the idea is that for many people, it's as if they fly one or more, more time zones to the east on the start of the working week because they have to try and go to bed earlier and wake up earlier to go to work and then the weekend rolls around and they follow their natural pattern and that entails probably going to bed a little bit later sometimes but certainly waking up much later which is possibly a cause of circadian system disruption yes and social jet lag has been associated with various health outcomes of course too so the first very large-scale study of this was done by some researchers in Germany, led by a guy called Till Roderberg. Oh, yes. And he found that in this population of more than 65,000 people, more than two thirds of people experienced at least an hour of social jet lag. And beyond its effects on sleep duration alone, social jet lag was associated with BMI among those adults who were overweight and obese. And then since then, we've had other studies which have associated it with numerous other cardiometabolic abnormalities. So resting heart rate, dysglycemia, dyslipidemia, inflammation, excessive levels of cortisol, insulin resistance, all sorts of things. And we see similar associates, associations in many of those studies of chronotype too. And the other thing to consider is that it's probably true both of people who experience high levels of social jet lag and of night owls that they're more likely to engage in negative health behaviors such as smoking alcohol consumption and so on so it's difficult to disentangle how much of this is due for example to sleep loss versus some of these behavioral consequences versus the circadian system disruption that might accompany being a night owl and social jet lag but in general, those associations seem to be there. In rare instances, it's been documented that, for example, being a late chronotype might be associated with better cognitive performance in some populations. But looking at the body of literature as a whole, I would suggest that being a late chronotype and experiencing more social jet lag definitely seem to be bad things. I hope you're enjoying the episode. We'll be back shortly. Hi, I'm Nicholas Breen, Clinical Support Team Leader at Metagenics. And I'm Joanne McNeil, Clinical Education Team Leader at Metagenics. 2019 marks the 20th year of the Metagenics International Congress on Natural Medicine. And in June, Metagenics will again assemble the most influential thought leaders, researchers and clinicians in the natural medicine industry. The Metagenics International Congress on Natural Medicine provides a perfect blend of research, innovation and passion in an atmosphere where new concepts and ideas merge with high-level science and ultimately changes the way natural medicine is practiced. This year's Congress, Modern Epidemics, Practicing Tomorrow's Medicine Today, is an event not to be missed. With chronic disease spiraling out of control, mood and neurological disorders, immune dysfunction, arthritis, fatigue, hormonal issues, and obesity have all increased in prevalence at an exceptional rate over the past few decades. Join international speakers Professor Sachin Panda, Dr Jeffrey Bland and Dr Cara Fitzgerald as they provide insight into recent scientific discoveries in the fields of inflammation, immunity, epigenetics and bioenergetics and translate this new cutting-edge science into clinical practice. Join us on the Gold Coast, Australia in June 2019 for the most significant educational event in the Australian and New Zealand natural medicine industry. Head to metagenicscongress.com.au for all the information, including the full speaker lineup, and to register for this exciting event. We look forward to seeing you there. Now, let's get back to the episode. 
so with the social jet lag, I did see some research exploring whether there was a bit of an old age about try and keep a regular routine and keep continue to wake up at the same time every morning. Is mm. it better for, could you say, for people that say go out of a Saturday and a Friday night to still wake up at their uh, workday time, say at 6am or 7am, or is it better to actually try and bank some sleep and sleep in a bit on the weekends? <laughs> this, this seems to polarise people. <laughs> and I, I, I can understand why. But at the same time, I can't think of a good rationale for one of the perspectives. So my perspective would be sleep in. You're, you're probably already short on sleep. Yeah. Get as, mu- get as much sleep as you can when you get the opportunity to try and catch up somewhat. But with that said, the issue with that is that if you sleep in, you're then exposed to less light the following yeah, day, sure. early in your biological day. And also you're likely to have paid off some sleep pressure, which means that you're less likely to be sleepy at the usual bedtime that you would have the following evening. So the risk basically is that your sleep-wake cycle might start to shift later in response to you sleeping in. So I'd say sleep in, but then as soon as you are up, get outside, spend some time outside in bright daylight because the intensity of the light that we're exposed to outdoors is so much higher than what we're exposed to indoors. Just to give you an idea of this, it's measured in units named the lux and one lux is the amount of the intensity of light that's emitted by a single candle that's held one meter from a person. And indoors in a relatively well-lit office, it might be 500 lux, but outdoors at midday in the middle of the summer, it might be 150,000 lux. So the difference is enormous. our visual systems aren't very good at picking up on this difference, which is why we don't really notice it. However, our body's clocks certainly do notice it. And the most important thing in synchronizing our body's clocks is the contrast between daytime and nighttime light exposure. It's not just about the intensity of light, the spectrum of light is important too. And the composition of light that we're exposed to indoors versus outdoors probably is a little bit different. So outdoors, for example, around twilight, so around dawn and dusk, there tends to be more blue light. Whereas indoors, that's not necessarily the case. And then the risk also indoors is that we're exposed to lots of blue light at night, which in the natural setting, we would absolutely not be exposed to unless we were living at the North Pole yeah. in the middle of the summer or whatever. So with, with that in mind, the important thing to take away really is to spend a bit more time outdoors during daylight especially early in your day especially if your sleep wake cycle tends to be later than you would like it to be and then to do what you can to reduce your exposure to nocturnal artificial light pollution and specifically blue light because we know that blue light has the most potent effects on both disrupting our circadian systems at the wrong time and also our alertness so it has alerting effects which are probably independent of the effects on our body's clocks yeah okay so let's just explore that blue light and light at night time because there is some emerging evidence or some suggestion this could be as problematic perhaps as the sleep restriction itself uh, what's this the latest uh, data on blue light and probably first of all just explain uh, blue light versus other sources yeah so Blue light, it has a particular wavelength. It's relatively short wavelength. And that type of short wavelength light is most absorbed by those specialized cells in the eyes that I mentioned earlier. And the issue generally now in our modern society and in the world in general is that artificial light pollution is more and more pervasive and we're spending so much time indoors. So it seems, for example, that about 80% of the world's population is exposed to quite strong artificial light at night. And this area is actually growing and the intensity of the light pollution is increasing too. It certainly seems to be the case in recent years. Now, how is this associated with risk of diseases? It's difficult to study because you gather data using satellites, for example, that give you ideas about nocturnal light pollution, then it doesn't tell you what's happening at the level of the individual. Just because there's Mm. artificial light pollution at night, it doesn't mean 
that the people who live in those areas aren't indoors and sheltered from that light pollution. But with that said, if you look at these countries and nocturnal light pollution, then it seems to be associated with health outcomes such as obesity. And there's been quite a lot of attention in recent years that on the subject of artificial light exposure and breast cancer risk. And I would say that the epidemiological studies are somewhat inconclusive, but mechanistically it makes sense. So if you're exposed to artificial light at that time, then it's going to suppress pineal gland synthesis of melatonin, which I mentioned earlier. Melatonin has important functions, obviously in our body's clocks, but also in the immune system. And because of those effects on sleep that I mentioned, if our clocks shift later, we're going to experience sleep loss and then sleep loss that's going to, for example, dysregulate the immune system. You end up in this vicious cycle if you're not careful. So there's some evidence for roles of artificial light at night in obesity and breast cancer. Depression is another subject which has been studied a bit recently. So there was a study published last year that looked at elderly people in Japan and they measured artificial light exposure in people's bedrooms. And they found that people who are exposed to more than five lux in their bedrooms are more likely to have depression. And there has also been some preclinical research on why this might be the case. And it seems to be that those specialized cells in the eyes are at play. And it's possible that the effects of artificial light exposure at night on depression risk are actually independent of the circadian system. So I would say that the effects of artificial light at night are far less conclusive than those of sleep loss. And sleep loss, in my mind, is a much more important thing to consider. But these two things are, of course, interrelated. And there's just been much more research on sleep loss. But I, I think that it's probably worth speaking a little bit about sleep loss just because as a, as a body of evidence, I think it's, it's very persuasive that sleep loss and sleep disruption contributes to negative health outcomes, but it's probably the case that no aspect of our biology escapes the, the perilous effects of sleep loss. Yeah, well, if you want to give us a, an update on the data says on sleep loss. Yeah, so I suppose you could probably go in all sorts of different directions with this, so I'll try, try and keep it somewhat brief. But if you look, for example, at meta-analyses, so studies that compile the results of all the studies that have been done on a topic and then weight the results according to the quality of the study, then we know that short sleep is associated with outcomes such as risk of coronary heart disease. So it seems that each one-hour reduction in self-reported sleep duration below seven hours per night is associated with a 7% increased risk of developing coronary heart disease. And of course, cardiovascular disease is probably the biggest cause of death worldwide. It's thought to contribute to 31% of all deaths, actually. If we consider some other outcomes, then obesity, of course, is a risk factor for cardiovascular disease and probably contributes to about 7% of all diseases. And in a meta-analysis published a few years ago of adults, they found that short sleep was associated with a 45% higher odds of developing obesity in years to come. Obesity is also a risk factor for type 2 diabetes. And type 2 diabetes, of course, leads to blindness, stroke, and kidney issues, all sorts of bad things. And each one-hour reduction in sleep duration below seven hours per night was associated with a 9% high risk of developing type 2 diabetes in a meta-analysis of nearly 500,000 people. And then the brain, of course, doesn't escape the effects of sleep loss. And people who report sleep disturbances are at 55% higher odds of developing Alzheimer's in years to come. And Alzheimer's is the mm. leading cause of dementia and it's the leading cause, neurodegenerative cause of death worldwide too. So if we look at all of these studies, and look at all-cause mortality, and I often start there actually because it gives you some idea of the overall burden of some sort of 
some sort of input on health outcomes, then each one hour reduction in self-reported sleep duration below seven hours per night is associated with a 6% increase in risk of dying from any cause. So that's all cross-sectional evidence. And I don't, I don't mind focusing on, on one of those in particular, if you like. I know that before we were speaking today, you, you mentioned sleep and adiposity specifically. So I can, I can go a little bit deeper on that, if you like. Absolutely. It sort of sounds almost counterintuitive. The, the, the most, um, I suppose, passive thing you can do is sleep, yet it's currently uh, <laughs> linked to um, being overweight. Yeah, I know. It's, it's ironic, isn't it? So that was some cross-sectional evidence. If we now consider experimental studies, then there have been a couple of very good randomized controlled trials in which people aren't allowed as much sleep as they need. So one of these was done by Arlette Nedelcheva, 2010. She's at the University of Chicago, or she was then at least. And she looked at overweight, middle-aged adults, and they basically had two weeks in the lab of calorie restriction. And they were allowed either five and a half hours to sleep or eight and a half hours to sleep. And what she found is that those allowed five and a half hours in bed each night lost less of lost less of their mass as fat mass so it reduced sleep loss reduced the proportion of weight lost as fat by 55 percent and unsurprisingly it shifted the relative substrate utilization towards less oxidation of fat and the people in the sleep loss condition also had higher hunger so the, the implication there is that these people are given controlled diets and in the free world, it's possible that actually they would have just eaten more as mm. well as losing less of their mass as fat mass. And these findings, they were broadly recapitulated recently. So last year, Sean Youngstead's group published a study which basically tried to better mimic how people lose sleep in the real world. And in this instance, there was a calorie restriction group or a calorie restriction plus sleep restriction group but the sleep restriction was only on five nights each week because of course many people lose sleep from Monday to Friday or from Sunday to yeah. Thursday and then they try and catch up on the weekend. Mm -hmm. And after eight weeks, again, the proportion of mass lost as fat was greater in the calorie restriction group, so lower in the sleep restriction group. And they found similar effects on substrate utilization and leptin was also lower in the sleep restriction group. Now, something else to consider here is the effects of sleep loss on how much energy people consume. And some researchers just down the road from where I live actually published a meta-analysis two years ago on studies of sleep restriction and energy intake. And they found that looking at the 11 relevant studies, people consume about 385 calories more each day after sleep restriction, which doesn't necessarily sound like that much. But if you tally that over the course of a year, then mm. that would be how much energy is in 18 kilograms of fat tissue. And of course, I'm not suggesting that people who restrict sleep are going to gain 18 kilograms of fat tissue over a year because we have various mechanisms in our body which would try and defend against that happening. The, the other thing I suppose to consider here is that people respond differently to sleep loss. And there are actually quite big differences between people. So there's been some work, for example, looking at the effects of a single night of sleep restriction on energy intake and change in body mass too. And <laughs> at one end of the spectrum, after a single night of sleep restriction, you've got somebody who can lose over two kilograms of mass. And at the other end, you've got somebody who can gain nearly seven kilograms. And if you look at energy intake, then you also see quite big disparities. And what's interesting is that these differences between people seem to be stable over time. So if you bring people in once and then have them come in six months later, then whether they are one of those people who eats a lot more after sleep restriction seems to be consistent between both lab visits. So why is this the case? There are probably a few different things at play here. One is simply that if you lose sleep, there's more time to eat. <laughs> and there was some work that was published by David Dingy's last year which supported this idea. There are changes in the endocrine system, of course, so it's possible that data actually aren't particularly compelling, that there's an increase in ghrelin, which stimulates appetite. There's a reduction in leptin, which would reduce appetite. There's an increase in endocannabinoids, and those are also stimulatory to appetite. But it's not just about how much food 
people are consuming because people also tend to make worse food decisions. And this is really important, actually. And it could compound the effects of sleep loss on metabolic health. So it's unclear whether sleep loss affects things like macronutrient composition of the foods that people select, but people do seem to gravitate towards very palatable, energy-dense foods. And there's one example of this that I love, which is that after sleep deprivation, so being allowed no sleep whatsoever, people purchased more calorie-dense foods in a mock supermarket the next day. So they were given a fixed amount of money Yeah. when they, when they tallied the total number of calories in the foods that they selected. It was much higher after sleep deprivation. But the reason for some of these changes is probably changes in brain activity. So you tend to see increases in activity in brain regions that are involved in reward in response to the food stimuli. And then also the frontal cortex, which is this recently evolved part of the brain, which is particularly prominent in humans, seems to communicate less effectively with other brain regions that are involved in appetite regulation. So there, there are lots of things at play, but the net result is a clear increase in energy intake and the other thing I should mention is energy expenditure. And it seems that sleep loss scarcely affects energy expenditure. So in that same meta-analysis done by research that King's, that I mentioned earlier, they found negligible effects of sleep restriction on energy expenditure acutely. But of course, over time, if sleep loss is leading people to lose fat-free mass and potentially gain mm. fat mass, then resting metabolic rate would decline, which would probably negatively affect energy expenditure because the main determinant of energy expenditure is surely fat-free mass. It's not physical activity level. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, compelling reasons to promote a good night's sleep. So I might use that as a bit of a segue to ask, what's your, you mentioned earlier about building up sleep pressure to fall asleep. Mm. I've heard you mention somnogens. What's some um, key strategies you'd consider to prepare and go to sleep to ensure you get adequate sleep? Yeah. So what I would say is it starts during the daytime. And I think this is something that people miss sometimes. So for example, people often speak about the effects of artificial light at night. But as I mentioned previously, the contrast between daytime light exposure and nighttime light exposure is very important there. So what I would say is that it's, of course, important to build physical activity into your day, but when possible, do so outdoors. I know you live in a very hot part of the world, and it's important in areas such as that to be wary of the fact that, especially as somebody of northern European descent, you're, you're at risk of damaging your skin so i'm, I'm yeah. not saying be, be reckless and then just go out at midday and just work on the tan but what i'm saying is that if, if you can spend at least 30 minutes outdoors during daylight then that's a good thing and for many people who have to wake up to an alarm in the morning it's probably preferable to make that exposure relatively early in your waking day as soon as possible once the sun is up so being physically active is probably important to building that sleep pressure. And there's been some work showing that regular, moderate to vigorous intensity physical activity tends to shorten how long it takes people to fall asleep, improve sleep quality, and then possibly slightly prolong sleep duration too. But you don't want to do very strenuous exercise too close to bedtime mm. if that's your only opportunity to do exercise. Because if you do very strenuous exercise, then you'll increase your core body temperature, you'll increase activity in the sympathetic branch of the autonomic nervous system. And both of those things are going to interfere with your ability to fall asleep. And of course, if, if you go to the gym, for example, you're also being exposed to bright light and loud noise at that time, which aren't good for sleep. So <laughs> finish strenuous exercise at least three hours before bed, finish moderate exercise, probably two hours before bed. And then when it comes to sleep pressure, even short naps pay off quite a lot of the pressure to sleep. So I would say, Avoid napping if it's not part of your regular routine and certainly avoid it within six hours or so at bedtime. Yeah. The other thing to consider during the daytime is your diet, of course. And what I would generally suggest is not consuming caffeine within nine hours or so at bedtime. And I'd cap your caffeine intake at about two milligrams of caffeine per kilogram of body mass per day. There's a website named Caffeine Informer, which will give you some idea of how much caffeine's in commonly consumed products. And 
If you consume higher doses of caffeine than that, then you certainly want to have them earlier because the higher the dose of caffeine that you consume, the longer it lingers in your body and the more likely it is to interfere with sleep, of course. With respect to alcohol, I think a lot of people feel, well, I'll consume alcohol, it's a sedative, it's going to help me sleep. <laughs> what you tend to find with alcohol is that people do actually fall asleep a little bit faster and they spend a greater proportion of the early sleep period in the deeper stage of sleep. But then later in the evening, once your liver starts to clear the alcohol, sleep tends to break up and sleep becomes less restorative and, and people are more impaired the next day. So current guidance around alcohol is limit yourself to two units of alcohol per day, which is about the amount that's in a pint of beer or a medium glass of wine. And I would say probably stop consuming that within four hours or so at bedtime, which sounds very early to a lot of people, but I think that's smart. And then fluid intake is an important consideration because you don't want to wake up to pee in the evening if possible during the sleep period. So as a rule of thumb, stop consuming fluid at dinner time. And I would finish your dinner and stop consuming any, ca any calories by about two hours before your planned bedtime. You want to go to bed neither hungry nor full. And I suppose the other thing is to consider when it comes to your diet, we haven't really had time to touch on this too much, but I would say front load your calorie intake where possible because your body's clock regulates various aspects of your metabolism in a way such that it tends to better process the nutrients and the foods that you consume early in your waking day than later in your waking day. So for example, oral glucose tolerance is higher in the biological morning than the biological evening. The number of calories that you burn in response to, sorry, the number of calories that you burn in response to a fixed number of calories consumed tends to be higher in the biological morning than it is in the biological evening too. Insulin sensitivity is higher during the daytime. And if you look at studies that have basically taken people through identical dietary conditions, but in one, in one instance, 50% of the calories are consumed at breakfast, in the other 50% of calories are consumed at dinner, and otherwise the diets are exactly the same, same macronutrient composition and so on. After the condition in which people consume a greater proportion of their calories early in the day, they lose more than twice as much weight, more than twice as many inches off their waistlines. They have better blood sugar regulation wow. and they have better blood lipid regulation too. So it definitely, to me, makes a lot of sense to assign more of your calories early in your waking day. And of course that is contrary to how many people eat in the West in particular, because a lot of people have very big dinners relatively small breakfast, probably because they're sleep deprived, they're not hungry at that time, and then moderate sized lunches. So front load your calorie intake, but also if you're physically active in your afternoon, don't be afraid to assign many of your calories around that bout of activity because physical activity has lots of effects on nutrient partitioning, which basically mean that the calories that you do consume are more likely to end up where you want them to end up. Right. And then the other thing is, Keep your meal patterns consistent. That seems to be very important to metabolic regulation. Now, if we then move to the evening, you want your sleep environment to be uncluttered. That will be good for your psychological health, I think, more than anything else. You want to remove any unnecessary sources of artificial light from the bedroom. Blue light, as I mentioned, is the worst offender. So if you have an alarm clock that emits blue light, for instance, then you want to pick one that emits red light because red light is much less disruptive to your circadian system and much less alerting too. If you have some light pollution through your window, for instance, then consider using blackout blinds. You can use a sleep mask as an alternative or in addition to those blackout blinds. And then when it comes to your sleep routine, I think it's really important to give yourself enough time in bed, of course. And this is what I would focus on because you can't control how long you sleep for, but you can give yourself a sleep opportunity and be diligent about that. So track your sleep, consider trying to shift your sleep wake cycle earlier by exposing yourself to more bright blue light early in your day. If you have to wake up to an alarm, I would say if you're going to use an alarm, then actually use an alarm for your pre-bed routine to try and ingrain good sleep habits. So if your pre-bed routine, for example, starts two hours before your planned bedtime, set an alarm for then, and then 
once this routine is ingrained, you don't have to worry about that anymore. And then when it comes to pre-bed routine, I would say dim your lights so you can use dimmers or you can turn off some of the lights or you can wear blue blocking glasses if you want to look really cool mm -hmm. about two hours before bedtime. And then have a digital sunset. So devices such as laptops and phones have apps such as f.lux, Twilight for Android phones, Night Shift mode for iPhones respectively, which will filter blue light from those devices during the SCOTO period, so when it's dark outside, which is definitely a good thing. And you can also dim the brightness settings on them too, which is going to be beneficial. Then I would say possibly the main thing that interferes with people's ability to fall asleep is cognitive processes such as rumination. Some of us just can't switch off our brains yeah. late in the evening. And much of the time that's related to work. So for example, difficulty falling asleep is actually most common at the start of the working week. And something that I find very helpful is, is making a to-do list for the next few days, shortly before bedtime. There's a guy at Bailey University named Michael Scullin, who published some cool work last year on this. And he basically had people make a to-do list in which they listed as many items as possible for the coming days at bedtime. And found that when people do that, they fall asleep faster. And interestingly, those who listed more items fell asleep faster than those who listed fewer items too. <laughs> or they, they, they tended to. It wasn't statistically significant, but there was a suggestion that that might be the case. So I think that's probably a useful strategy for those people. And then when you're making that to-do list, try to assign tasks that you find stressful early in your waking day whenever possible. So if you have to have a difficult conversation with your boss, for instance, if you can do that in the morning, then that's definitely going to be a good thing. If it's late in the day, then your mind's probably still going to be racing at that time. It's going to be harder to fall asleep. So consider the do list and then hot shower about an hour before bedtime. So maybe 40 degrees C for 10 minutes tends to help people fall asleep faster. The way it does this is it raises the skin temperature of the extremities by a couple of degrees. And then this helps radiate heat out from the core. Again, as I mentioned earlier, the brain temperature then tends to drop a little bit faster and people will fall asleep faster and you want to keep your extremities warm so as much as your bed partner's bound to love this if you keep your socks on in bed <laughs> then that's, that's that's probably a good thing for sleep and then in 30 minutes or so before bedtime do something relaxing so that could be listening to an excellent podcast such as yours nathan <laughs> it could be reading a book in dim lighting it could just be hanging out with your partner but you certainly want to avoid anything that you find stressful the news is especially stressful so don't find yourself reading the news at that time also at this time around this time keep your bedroom cool so you might want to open your window you might want to use a fan which I find very helpful because where I live, it's relatively noisy outside, but the fan drowns out that noise. Alternatively, you could use earplugs around the time that you fall asleep to achieve the same purpose. But the issue with earplugs is that you often end up just hearing your heartbeat really loudly. <laughs> All yeah. of a sudden you become very attuned to what's going on inside yourself. So I, I personally find them quite distracting and a little bit uncomfortable, but a fan for me, it does the job very nicely. And then if you wake up in the evening, use as little light as possible when you go to the bathroom. If you go back to bed and then you struggle to get back to sleep initially, there's been no research on this, but I find that doing a body scan meditation basically just chills me out. And that type of meditation has been shown to affect the autonomic nervous system in a way that should facilitate sleep. So basically there might be greater activation of the parasympathetic branch of the autonomic nervous system. And to me, mechanistically, it makes a lot of sense that that type of intervention should help. And then if you still can't get back to sleep, get out of bed because you want to associate your bedroom with sleep. So do something relaxing in the room next door or whatever. So that might be listening to a podcast, for instance. Again, use as little light as possible. And yep. then when you're, when you're really tired, then go back to bed. And then in the morning, if you wake up to an alarm, you, you have to wake up to an alarm. 80% of people do wake up to alarms then you want to set your alarm as late as possible because each time the alarm wakes you up, it's a stressor to your body. And for that reason, you should avoid pressing the snooze button. And when you get the opportunity to not wake to an alarm, as we spoke about earlier, please, please sleep in and, and try and catch up on lost sleep. You won't be able to fully catch up, but do so. And then once you're up, get outside, expose yourself to lots of daylight and crack on. So I think those are probably the most important things. 
that's amazing. Yeah, I think you could rewind that. Uh, hopefully, listen can rewind that and listen to that again. Just write and make a list, as you said, of all the things you um, said there. That some great practical tri- uh, tips. Um, now we're almost out of time. I just wanted to quickly touch on, and I know you're a scientist and you often give very uh, detailed answers, but I just want to touch on. You mentioned the the timing, the the front load and loading of the calories. The peripheral, mm. the peripheral clocks seem to be most sensitive to the presence of nutrients and the time-restricted feeding is becoming popular. Uh, we've yeah. actually got Professor Sachin Panda coming out to our conference, uh, our Congress this year. To talk oh, about great. It. Yeah. Uh, what's your, if you can do an elevator uh, pitch on mm. some of the, the do's and don'ts or your takeaways of the time-restricted feeding protocols? Well, I, I think I touched on the most important takeaways earlier, but if, if I'm speaking about the takeaways of the studies that have been done so far, then I suppose that what I would probably say is that the preclinical research that's been done on non-human animals yes. shows all sorts of beneficial effects. So time-restricted feeding is what we'd refer to in this instance, and that typically entails giving animals access to food for up to 12 hours each day. And Sachin's done the lion's share of work on this mm. subject. And he's found, for example, that if you give fruit flies access to food for just 12 hours each day and you compare that to when they're allowed access to food around the clock, then as they age, they experience lower weight gain. They have better function of the heart and the muscles as well as the muscles outside of the heart and they tend to sleep better as they age. And this is all despite consuming an equivalent number of calories in the two conditions. And then he's done some work on mice as well. So if you give mice a so-called high-fat diet, which is really a high-fat, high-sugar diet, it's just, it's a diet that's somewhat reminiscent of a typical Western diet, then it makes the circadian system of the animal function worse, and they tend to spread out their food intake, so they consume more food when the lights are on, which is their sleep period, typically. And if you use time-restricted feeding during exposure to a high-fat diet, then basically the gut microbiota is more reminiscent of mice-fed normal chow. They gain less weight over time on the high-fat diet. The time-restricted feeding protects against fatty liver disease and obesity, at least the lower inflammation, better insulin sensitivity, better coordination, better wheel running endurance, and interestingly, it seems to be the case that you don't have to use time-restricted feeding every day of the week to get mm. this beneficial effect. So five days of time-restricted feeding is similarly beneficial to seven days. But the question is, do humans respond the same way? And to be quite honest, I'd argue they probably don't based on what's been published so far. So something that we need to consider, of course, is that these mice are being exposed to unhealthy diets. and in humans, that's not necessarily the case. So if you give people the same dietary composition in the two conditions, then you might not find such pronounced effects. And actually there is some evidence in mice that that's the case too. So if you give mice normal chow versus high, high fat diet chow, then time restricted feeding doesn't seem to have such beneficial effects when the two groups are both consuming normal chow. Anyway, in humans, a common way to implement time restricted eating so I refer to it as time-restricted eating in humans, is breakfast skipping. And there have been some very large-scale studies of this. So one of them was published three years ago in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. They looked at more than 300 overweight and obese adults, and they just randomly divide them into a breakfast-skipping group or a breakfast group for 16 weeks, and there were no differences in weight loss between the two conditions. In my mind, maybe the, the best studies that have been done on this specific subject so far were done by research at the University of Bath in England. So James Betts was the lead author on the first of these and they looked at lean young adults and they consumed zero calories before midday so that was the breakfast skipping group or at least 700 calories by 11 a.m and after six weeks they found that the breakfast skippers consumed about 500 fewer calories, but they also burned about 400 fewer calories. And as a result, there were no differences in cardiometabolic health or no differences in sleep between two conditions. The only thing they found was that afternoon glycemic variability, so blood sugar regulation, was actually a bit worse in the breakfast skippers. And then two years later, they published exactly the same type of study design, 
but looked specifically at obese people. And they found, again, no real differences in energy balance between the two conditions. The only difference they found was that the afternoon insulin sensitivity was worse in the people who skipped breakfast. So that's interesting. I suppose that one thing to consider is that breakfast skipping means consuming a smaller proportion of energy early in the day, which, as I mentioned earlier, is probably a good thing. So the alternative would be to skip dinner, for example. And last year, Courtney Peterson, who's at Pennington, published some great work on this. And they, they had overweight and obese men with prediabetes go through two conditions. So in one, they had three meals spread out over 12 hours each day for five weeks. And in the other condition, they spread out the same three meals over six hours each day for five weeks. And they finished the final meal by 3 p.m., so it's very, very early in the day. That's and they right. found that that early time restricted eating condition led to better insulin sensitivity, lower measures of oxidative stress, reduced appetite, and a very pronounced drop in blood pressure. So morning blood pressure after the early time restricted eating condition was about 10 millimeters of mercury lower, which is an effect that's comparable to ACE inhibitors, which are drugs that are used to lower blood pressure. So, so I think there's more work to be done, but... Breakfast skipping certainly is a, is a form of time-restricted eating, in my mind, doesn't seem to be beneficial. In a, in, based on those studies that have implemented in a way which is representative of how people practice it in the real world. But if people can undergo a form of time-restricted eating in which they skip dinner, and that's practical for them, then there might be benefits to that. But I don't know how many people that is practical for, because... Many people live with their families or whatever. Yes. And do, do they want to sit around the dinner table with their kids and skip dinner because they think that it might have an effect on their blood pressure or, or is it more important for them to be with their family? So you can always consider these things in isolation, but actually health is about so much more than diet timing, of course, and social relationships are enormously important. So I, I think that you always need to try and consider these things in the broader context of a person's life and when you do so i'm just not persuaded that time restricted eating is necessarily universally a good thing to do the instance in which i do think it's likely to be helpful is for example during the holidays because let's say it's christmas time and everyone's around and there's lots of really tasty food around and if you left your own devices and impose no constraints on yourself whatsoever all of a sudden you find yourself eating chocolate at 10 p.m yeah. And then the next morning, you know, you've got a glass of Bucks Fizz at 7 a.m. And you're eating around the clock and you're eating all this very tasty food. And in these circumstances, your diet's probably actually somewhat representative of those high-fat diets that have been used in those preclinical studies. And I think that time-restricted eating is a really smart thing to do at those times because when you, when you restrict your caloric period in that way, you're also likely to do away with some of those poorer food choices so let's say that you stop consuming calories after 7 p.m you're probably less likely to drink alcohol in the evening in that case True. so it's, it's probably going to have a good effect on diet quality so that was a very long answer to what you asked <laughs> <laughs> and you asked specifically for an elevator answer so i, I apologize for my verbosity <laughs> was a tall building um <laughs> <laughs> yeah i don't think it's dissimilar to what uh professor sachin panda will We'll say what I've heard him say before and uh, sure. probably we'll say it at Congress. But, yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing his um, take on all his research. Yeah, he's right. pro. Yeah. Well, uh, so are you. That's been, yeah, you've got an encyclopedic knowledge there. Um, probably why your content director for humanos.me. Do you want to give us a, a quick uh, plug pretty much of um, <laughs> the, the, the website you work for and, and what you do? Sure, yeah. So I've, I've been working with HumanOS for a couple of years now. And Dan Pardee, the CEO, is the person who brought me on board. And I really enjoy my work. I'm very proud to represent HumanOS. And the idea behind what we do is that you could have a situation in which people have all these different sources for their health information and for tracking their health behaviors and their health outcomes. But we want to try and consolidate everything in one place. So HumanOS is somewhere where you can go to find out what you need to do to be healthy. So for example, we have blogs on various subjects, which I regularly contribute to. We have podcasts as well. The podcast is the official podcast of the Sleep Research Society and the Canadian Sleep Society, but 
we cover various different topics on it. And then also we have courses that explore these subjects in more detail and guides that do away with the details and just focus on what to do. So we try and give people that type of information. That's primarily what my job centers around. But then an issue is that sometimes people know what to do. But they don't really know how to act on it. So take the example of diet. Maybe you know that consuming a paleo diet is likely to be a good thing for you, but you don't know how to cook. Well, we have a course on cooking, for example, which should help with that process. And then the platform, which is a web application, integrates with various different wearable devices, such as Fitbits, so people can track their sleep on the platform, their physical activity too. You can also do so manually if you like. And then this year, we'll probably start to help people track their health outcomes on the platform too. The question really is which health outcomes are most important to track. And I'm not sure that there is very good evidence about exactly what is most important to track at the moment because there are just so many tests yeah. out there. So we're in the process of trying to narrow those down at the moment because we really want to focus on the most important things for people to focus on because lots of people micro manage their health and actually they'd be better off probably worrying less about the minutiae and, and, and just focusing on those big rocks and otherwise leading enriched lives. So that is a little bit about human OS. And I know that we were speaking before this call and we have a discount code for the listeners who, who wish to give human OS a go. So you can sign up for free and that will give you access to the tracking tools and also to our introductory course. And the blog and the podcast are free regardless of whether you remember. But if you wish to have access to everything, then you can sign up for a single dollar, US dollar for your first month. And that will give you access to everything on the site. And you'll use the discount code Metagenics to do so, all lowercase. So come check it out. Say hi. Otherwise, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. I have my own personal Twitter account, but it's probably only really of interest to people who are scientifically inclined because I normally just share studies that I found interesting but the handle for that is just at GDM Potter but I'm always happy to try and answer any questions and make myself handy if I can so don't be afraid to get in touch brilliant yeah and the, your uh, humannowest.me the content there is incredible the the tutorials and all the education there is amazing well it's been uh, a few attempts we tried but it certainly was worth the wait for me Greg I really appreciated all the insight and information and yeah, diving into the complexity of the science and having those clear, simple, um, but really profound strategies, particularly for promoting a restful sleep. So thanks for your time. I'm about to sign off for the day, but you're about to start. But uh, yeah, <laughs> I said, I really appreciate you coming on and, and spending some time with us today. Yeah, absolute pleasure, Nathan. Anytime. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Metagenics Clinical Podcast. Find us on iTunes and leave a review. Join our practitioner-only Metagenics Facebook group to be informed of new podcast releases, keep up to date with key industry updates, and more. Visit metagenics.com.au to find useful links and resources relating to this podcast and sign up for our e-newsletter.